All right, let's look together at these verses. Each week I've been trying to give you one particular aspect of David's heart uh, as it has been shaped by God's word. And the word that I came up with this week is the word survivor. Uh, David is showing us what it means to have a survivor's heart. Have you noticed how popular survivor shows are on TV these days? Uh, In fact, there are some times where I wonder if that's the only thing on TV. Uh, Everything from Life Below Zero to Alaska Frontier to even, yes, Naked and Afraid, which is probably the most frightening of all the the Survivor shows. Um, Wouldn't want to be in that situation, to be honest, but uh, people sign up to do this. Uh, And I started to think, why do we like to watch those shows? And I don't know what your thoughts might be. But I began to think, it's probably because, I know for me when I watch them, I like to think, would I be able to do that? At what point would I say, uncle, enough's enough, I'm done. I'm putting my clothes back on and going home. (laughs) For me, that would be immediately, by the way, on that one. But, you know, it's entertaining from time to time. Do you agree with me? that there's something about survival that we find heroic and we wonder whether we have a little bit of that hero in us. Well, if you're a Christian or even if you're not a Christian, uh, I know you'll agree with this. Surviving is not just something that you have to have in the wilderness. Surviving is a life skill that you need no matter what. You don't have to sign up for a show. Um, You don't have to go looking for trouble, amen? Trouble will find you well enough on its own. And so if you're going to learn how to be a consistent follower of Jesus in your life, one of the things you have to learn is simply just to stand. Uh, There's there's a beautiful set of verses in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, the famous verses about the full armor of God, where Paul says, put on the armor and stand. And then after you've done everything else, stand. And then stand, therefore, he says it three times in a row in the same little group of sentences, stand, stand, stand. Just learn how to survive, and sometimes that's the best thing you can do for your spiritual health, because trouble will find you. Trouble found David, don't you know? We've been seeing this week after week. David is in trouble, mainly because he's being mistreated by other folks. He's a target. He's the king Everybody likes to hate on the king. He's got a lot of people who are opposing him, especially they oppose him because he's so insistent on following God. And so he has to learn how to stand there with his armor on, with the Lord at his side. And I think in these eight verses, he gives us three really important lessons to learn for how to survive. Y'all want to look at it? All right. I'm no Bear grills, but I can teach you something about spiritual survival anyway. Uh, First, there is the need for survival, which he tells us in the first verse. And then he goes on to talking about the hope of survival. And then finally, the means of survival. So there's the when we need to, the how we can, and then how to actually live that out. All right, so first of all, let's look at why we need to survive, the need. In verse 121, David describes his situation very vividly. He says, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. 
Now it's interesting. He describes his suffering as being oppressed. The people who are against him, he calls them oppressors. Uh, what is an oppressor? Anybody got any ideas? And you're allowed to answer out loud on Sunday nights. That's part of it, right? What is an oppressor? A bully. That's a great way to put it. Uh, usually it's somebody who's somehow more powerful than you, at least in that situation. And you're not as powerful. And they're using their position to take advantage or to exploit you for their own advantage. That's a bully. Uh, David had bullies. Uh, you might go back to David's life when he was on the run from Saul. That's a great example. Saul was the king. David was barely out of his teenage years. There was clearly a power differential. And Saul was using all of his army power to try to take David down. That's oppression. But even after David became king, even though he was the most powerful man in the land, he still had people who oppressed him. People who had, whether it was political or whether it was army advantage against him and they would use that to try to bully him into submission and David is able to go to God here and he is speaking to God right he's when he says I have done what is right do not leave me he's talking to God don't leave me to my oppressors why because I have done the right thing I've done what is just and I've done what is right uh, David is describing here something very important to, to think about not all suffering is a result of our own fault. Right? It's a pretty simple concept. Now, sometimes it is. And uh, we'll get here in a, in a second, but some of us don't ever want to take the blame for anything. And I'll, I'll talk to you in a minute if that's you. But for now, let me talk to the person who wants to try to take the blame for everything. If anybody dislikes you, you jump to immediately, oh, what did I do wrong? I must have done something wrong or else they wouldn't be against me. Well, that isn't actually always true. And if you go through life thinking that, um, you're, going to, you're going to ride a roller coaster because you're going to judge your own actions and your own words based on people's opinion of them rather than based on what God has already instilled within you. We, we established this last, last week, didn't we? You got to learn to listen to God. Uh, David says, that's my main goal is to please the Lord. If God didn't tell me to believe it or to do it in his word, I ain't doing it. That was David's attitude. And here he's able to say with a clean conscience, I have tried. He's not claiming perfection, but he's saying, I have tried in this situation to do everything God told me to do. And yet they still hate me. They're still mistreating me. They're still making life difficult for me. I'm appealing to you, God, for help. Your servant is in need of some assistance. Intervene in my case. Sometimes suffering, rather than being a result of our wrongdoing, actually can be a twisted result of our right doing. I'm going to ask you this question, and let me tell you, it's an easy answer. Who in the Bible suffered for doing right? No better example than Jesus. The Bible says he harmed no one. Um, he opened the eyes of the blind. He healed the lame. He cast out devils from people. 
He did good things. He taught grace and law in perfect balance. He gave people the light of God's word. And yet, at the end of his life, they hated him. They opposed him. They spit on him. They abused him. They rejected him. Did you know in the Bible that Jesus says, if they treated me that way, don't be surprised when they treat you that, you that way, O believer? There will be times as a Christian when you are mistreated, sometimes oppressed, sometimes just persecuted, sometimes just, it's as simple as just being made fun of or ostracized for your stand for Jesus. It is a good thing and it is a encouraging thing to remember in those moments that God defends those who strive to keep a good conscience before him. Do y'all know what that means, to keep a good conscience before him? This is important. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, I take pains to keep a good conscience before God and people. So what does it mean to keep a good conscience? It's what David is showing here. He has examined his life. It's not that he's being self-righteous, okay? It's that he's examined his life. He knows that in relationship to God, his only hope is the mercy of God. We'll get there in a second. But in examining his life, he is not conscious of any way that he is not trying to do what God has told him to do. And anytime he finds a place where he's failed to do what God tells him to do, he's keeping short accounts with God. He's going to God and saying, God, don't you see my shortcomings? Please forgive me. Please help me. Give me more strength. And any place he finds himself doing it, he says, Lord, thank you for giving me the strength. Keep giving me the strength. That's what it means to keep a good conscience. Uh, you might say it's bending over backwards to make sure that you're pleasing the Lord and to make sure you're not giving any person a just cause to go against you or to accuse you. This is an important Christian virtue. Something that we might not talk about very often, but it's so important. The conscience of a person is precious. Your conscience is precious. One writer says the conscience is the citadel of God inside of you. It's the watchtower. It's the, the place, the thing that God has put in you where he can speak loudest. Because it's that part of you that either says you've done good or you've done bad. And it makes you feel good for doing good and bad for doing bad. That's a good thing. I mean, Lord help us if that goes out. Right? It's a very good thing for that to be there and for that to be working. One of the ways you hone that is by a diligent effort to keep a good conscience before the Lord, washed in the blood of Jesus, like we talked about this morning, but then, because of grace, seeking to obey God as much as in you lies. And when you don't, bringing it to the Lord immediately, not letting it fester, not letting it linger, but coming to him quickly to keep your accounts short. When you do that and you start to suffer, it's going to make it a world of, of a lot better. It's going to make it a lot easier for you to say, God, help me. When you have a bad conscience and you try to ask God for help, what happens? I'm not saying God won't help you. The Lord has helped me many a times when I had a bad conscience. Praise God. But I didn't feel too good about it. I didn't feel too confident about it. Have you ever prayed those prayers that you thought, well, the Lord ain't going to listen to me because I've been, I've been doing X, Y, Z or not doing you know, ABC. 
listen, you don't want to have that kind of relationship with God where you always think he's out to get you. The way to avoid that is to bring yourself to the blood of Jesus, be washed, and then try with all your might, with his power, to keep short accounts. David tried to do that. And and if you think that means, that I'm telling you that means to be perfect, well, notice I just used David as an example. He was not perfect. Far from it. But he was a man who bent over backwards to do what God had asked him to do. He kept short accounts. There was one time he let his account overdraft for over a year. Remember? In the thing with Bathsheba. And God sent a prophet to set him straight. You are the man, David. And David immediately brought it to the Lord in Psalm 51. This is important. I take pains to keep a good conscience before God, Paul says. And I encourage you to do the same. Uh, Not long ago, we read Job in our Bible reading. And I I told you that a lot of times I don't enjoy reading Job because it, woo, it's it's, it's heavy. And it's not the most encouraging reading, usually. This year, I loved it for some reason. It hit me in a different way. And one of the things I noticed was how This is what Job was wrestling over, wasn't it? Job had a conscience that he kept diligently. He prayed not only for his own sins, but every day he woke up and prayed that God would forgive his children for their sins. That's how careful Job was. And so when Job started suffering, he was confused. And the whole book, in a way, is like God dealing with a man over his conscience, helping him to understand the interplay between suffering that's innocent and suffering that's unjust and how to trust God in either case. And the same thing uh, is true for us. Uh, Some of us always think that if we suffer, it's because we've done something wrong. We've got to be a little bit more careful in our judgments than that. Let me let my favorite Baptist speak to us tonight. Charles Spurgeon. He's everybody's favorite Baptist, right? <laughs> Charles Spurgeon. He says this. No offense to other Baptists. I love them all, but Charles Spurgeon, I mean, he's a great man. He says this. David has been doing what is right as far as his ability allows. He hopes to be delivered from his oppressors when they make attempts to do him wrong. If I will not oppress others, he thinks, then I can pray that others won't be permitted to oppress me. A course of upright conduct is one that gives us boldness in appealing to the great judge for deliverance from the injustice of wicked men. This kind of pleading is not to be criticized as self-righteous, for it is most fit and acceptable. When we are dealing with God regarding our circumstances, Uh, shortcomings we're dealing with God we ought to take a different tone our tone then ought to be God your mercy alone can save me wash me in the blood of Jesus I bring none of my own righteousness but when we are dealing with, with with offenses that are coming from other people from oppression and mistreatment coming from other people that's where we ought to seriously consider before God whether our actions have been good or bad and if good we ought to be justified in pleading our own innocence and in bringing it to the Lord as a matter of his personal intervention. Spurgeon says this, Moral integrity is a great helper 
of spiritual comfort. In other words, the, the hard work of keeping a clean conscience pays off when you start to suffer. Especially when that suffering comes at the hands of another person. Think about that. We need to learn how to survive because we will suffer sometimes unjustly. And those are sometimes the most difficult things to survive. Let's look secondly at the hope of survival. And here we see a, a greater proof that David is not being self-righteous. Because right away after verse 121, he begins to talk immediately about the mercy of God. He believes, at the end of the day, the only way he's going to be able to survive this mistreatment is because God is going to show up with more mercy. Now, someone might say, well, how does David know God is going to show up? Is David um, being pushy or demanding with God? Well, I'll let you think about it. Let's, let's hear what he says. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation. Verse 124, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. And teach me your statutes. Is David being pushy or demanding or what? How does he know that God will show up with mercy? Because God. So there you see it. David had said at the beginning, God intervened because I, I've, I've done what is right. I've kept... I've examined myself, God, and I don't believe I've done anything to that person that's, that's worthy of blame, and yet they hate me and they're oppressing me. God, help me. But here's what my hope is in, your mercy. And I'm not pleading for mercy because I've been a good boy. I'm pleading for mercy because you have committed yourself to showing mercy to me. What David is using is the language of the covenant to talk to God. In the Bible, God makes covenants. A covenant's a relationship between people that is based on commitments and vows and pledges. And so you can look through and notice even the language that he uses. I, I want a pledge of good. My eyes long for your salvation, the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with me according to your already established steadfast love that you've already said you're going to have because you covenanted to have it. That's what David's hope is. David doesn't believe he can bind God. He doesn't believe in a sort of name it, claim it type of prayer life. But here's what he does believe in, and it's even more powerful than a name and claim it. He believes in a God promised it, he will deliver it prayer life. That's better uh, because that takes it out of my, you know, my own headspace where I'm sitting here thinking of what God ought to do. How good is that for me to think about what God ought to do? I mean, come on, you know, I may think that's a good idea, but you would tell me quickly, it wouldn't be a good idea, Stan, if you told God what to do. You know better, right? 
And so in this case, what we're doing is we're looking at the word of God. Again, it's all based on scripture. We're looking at scripture. What has God committed himself to? What has he sworn that he's going to do for his people? And it's that that I'm going to say, God, come through and do it. I'm throwing myself in the situation on your covenanted mercies, mercies that you have pledged. And I'm asking you to give me yet another pledge, yet another uh, fulfillment of your many promises that you've given so that I can find relief from the situation I'm in. He begins to say that his eyes are longing in verse 123, which we've seen this phrase before. It means my eyes are failing, they're fainting. I've been looking for so long for you to come through that I'm starting to lose my strength. And we all know what that feels like to pray and to pray and to pray and to wait and to wait and to wait and to wait and to wait. And it just feels like we're waited so long. And yet, even though he says my eyes are about to fail, they don't fail simply because he knows even if God seems to be late, he will always arrive. Anybody in in here ever late? Some are better at not being late than others. Who likes when you're late? Who likes for everybody to assume the worst about you? Do you like that? Wouldn't you rather they say, oh, you know, Stan must have just got caught by a train? Rather than, oh, Stan, that lazy bum. He can't get his schedule right. What a, what a loser. Wouldn't you rather be given the benefit of the doubt? Even if you don't give it to others? Well, think about this. When we're sitting here talking in our own lives about God, he's so late. I've been praying and God has not come through. How bad is that? Especially, I mean, in my case, if you say I'm a lazy bum, there's a chance you're right, right? And it's kind of a strong chance that you're right about me being late because of my own fault. But with God, there's 0.0 chance that he's late because of some defect in his character. And yet it's everything within us when we're waiting almost wants to jump to that. And David has learned the secret of not, and this is the greatest secret of survival that there is of all time. It's learning how to bank on what God has rendered certain. If God made it certain by saying it was certain, you should bank on it. And just don't even let yourself question it, doubt it, beyond reason. Don't let yourself do it. Don't let yourself go down that road. You will have thoughts. I get it. You will have doubts that pop up. Don't let yourself go down that trail very far. Because the further you go down that trail, the more you are verging into calling into question God's very character. And, well, I mean, it's just not, it's not right to judge God's character. And God has not done anything wrong to us for us to judge his character like like that. He has upstanding character. Covenanted character. And so David is fighting here to give God the benefit of his doubt. To say, God, my eyes are fainting. I'm looking for a pledge. 
But I still believe that the fulfillment will come. I believe that as you pledged before, you'll pledge again. And I believe that you will deal with your servant according to your steadfast love, even though it might seem right now you're not. I know you will because you've sworn you will. The greatest illustration that the Bible gives of this, I think, is Abraham. The Bible says when God came to Abraham, he swore to Abraham with an oath, Abraham, I will give you a child, and from you will become descendants as numerous as the sand on the sea. We talked about that this morning. Well, do you know what happens next in the story? Rewind back to when God says, Abraham, number the sand, look at the stars, I'm going to give you all this, I swear it. What happens next? Does he have a baby right then? Yeah, do you remember how, I know we did Genesis a while ago, do you remember how long it was? 25 years from when God swore it to when Isaac was born. And so the Bible tells us Abraham hoped against hope that God would do what he said. And that's what I'm talking about. The key to survival when you're being mistreated or when you're, you're being uh, judged harshly or falsely accused or whatever the case may be, any kind of suffering, is to hope against hope, to bank on what God has rendered secure. Even if you're waiting a while in it, you should always give God the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you may think he's late, but you've got a different watch than he does. You're on a different time zone than he is, <laughs> to say the least. And your wisdom is not even the same league as his. Give him the benefit of the doubt and trust. That's what David's doing. God, give me a pledge. God, encourage me with your covenant and mercy. I believe I can keep going because you have shined light from your word onto my dark circumstances. And I'm willing to stand where you have said, this is sure. Now let's look at the last thing which are the means of survival. And in verses 125 to 128, David describes his process for how he has developed this confidence in God. He has a process. He has a way that he has gone about doing this. In fact, I would say, um, surviving is active, not passive. Have you ever watched one of those survivor shows I was talking about earlier? Say Bear Grylls, right? Have you ever watched that? Um, what, one thing that I notice, and Bear Grylls to me is one of the best at this, at least on TV. I don't know if in real life he is. I hear there's like an emergency crew right there always ready to save him. I don't know. I, I don't believe these lies about Bear Grylls, but <laughs> many people say he's just faking it. But... He seems really good, and one of the things I notice about him is he's so adamant, like, you shouldn't be sitting around. He's like, if you're out here trying to survive, you should be always trying to find food, trying to build a fire, and trying to build a shelter. You should never stop moving. Once you start, stop moving, you start giving in to death when you're out in the wilderness. And when you're being treated this way, as David is being treated here, that, that holds really true. If you just sit there, and wallow in it, that's the worst thing you can do. The best thing to do when you're being mistreated is to get active. Food, shelter, fire. Here's what it means spiritually. Notice, 
fervent prayer and diligent digging into the scriptures. Those are the two things David does. Fervent prayer and diligent digging into the scriptures. David is not afraid to be active. In fact, he calls himself in verse 125. What does he call himself? You can answer. I'm a servant of God. You know, in other words, a servant is not afraid to work. A servant's not afraid to serve and to do what the master tells him to do. Now, we believe as Christians we are sons and daughters of the Lord. And the Bible will tell us we're not slaves because we're sons. And yet there are other places where it tells us we are slaves of God. What gives? Well, simply this. We are not slaves in the forced, drudgery, condemned, beaten, and mistreated sense. But we are, now that we're sons and daughters, willing servants of the Lord because we trust him. That's what David means. I am your servant. I trust you. God, tell me what to do. I'll do it. I'm going to get active. Be my guide. Tell me how to find the food, how to find the shelter, how to build the fire, and I'll do it. Listen to Charles Spurgeon again. He says, we who rejoice that we are sons of God are by no means less delighted to be called his servants. Now hear this. This is what I love about this idea from Spurgeon. Did not the firstborn son assume the servant's form and fulfill the servant's work completely? That's Jesus. Did he not do that? What higher honor then for the younger brothers and sisters to desire that, that they be made like the heir of all things? If Jesus was the son with a capital S and yet when he came to this world he said, God, I'm your servant, put me to work. Fill my hands with work and make me busy for you then what greater honor is there for sons and daughters of God to say, God, put me to work. Show me what to do. That was David's attitude. He didn't sit around and moan and groan. Sometimes people criticize the Psalms because David sounds whiny. I've heard that a lot. And, and yeah, from time to time he does, but it's also assuming that David, all he's doing all day is sitting around writing Psalms. He wasn't just doing that. The Psalms were his praise they were his prayer he wasn't just only sitting around writing psalms he was getting busy the positive work of prayer the positive work of digging the word and he was running a country it's important to be active david says first there in verse 126 i love this this is a great prayer it is time for the lord to act don't you love that prayer it's a bold prayer I'm not sure that I always feel bold enough to pray like that. It is time for the Lord to act. This is fervent prayer. This is the kind of prayer Jesus talked about. The, the friend knocking on the door at midnight. Right? Saying, let me in. Give me some bread. This is the widow who keeps coming back to the king saying, give me justice. This is that kind of prayer. It is time for the Lord to act. David, of course, has confidence here because he knows who God is. He knows his character, covenant, faithfulness. And so he knows that when he says it's time for God to act, God likes that kind of thing because God likes to act according to his appointment, according to his promise. 
And so David says, Lord, do it. People are breaking your law everywhere. These people who are mistreating me, they're breaking your law left and right. They're dishonoring you. Act. That's not all. He's not just calling on God fervently, but he's also digging out the treasures of Scripture, filling his heart with it as he goes about his daily work. Uh, He's not simply getting lost in the running of the country. He's going out to run the country with a heart full of the gold of Scripture. I love what it says in verse 127. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Y'all, if I were to come to you today and put down 10 pounds of solid gold on one side and a Bible on the other. And you could only take one. Who's got the Bible? What if I had a sack of diamonds and a Bible? You can only pick one. Which one do you pick? I find that a little bit convicting. Sack of diamonds come in handy. (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, (laughs) Wait a minute. I've already got a Bible. (laughs) Y'all know what I mean. I know you already got a Bible. And you would take the sack of diamonds. I get it. I would too. But David says, look, I value God's word more than the gold. David had gold. But he knew it was more valuable to him. Now, I love that David calls the Bible gold. Do you love that? Here's why I love that. Gold don't just fall in your lap. The heavens don't rain gold. You don't just walk down the street and boom, a nugget of gold. How do you find gold? There's another show about that. It's also kind of a survival show. There's a few actually about that. How do you find gold? You got to dig, you got to search, you got to pan it out. You got to, there's all kinds of stuff. You got to mine it. And then when you find it, you've got to do more to it to make it pure. You got to process it. In other words, activity. David is fervent in prayer, but he's also active in his relationship with God in the word. He's digging out the deep uh, riches that are hidden in scripture. He's pulling them out and he's working them over in his mind and refining them so that they become a part of the jewel case of his heart so that as he goes out to run the country and to face the enemies and to face the friends and all the rest, he knows what to do and when to do it. He knows how to keep a good conscience because he stored his heart with treasure. Surviving is necessary. Welcome back, kids. But let me tell you this. Surviving can only come by the mercy of God. And yet, this might seem like a contradiction to you, Survival comes only by God's mercy, and yet it only comes by effort too. Don't you know some things come by grace and effort? Because they come through grace-produced effort, (laughs) and they're God's gracious crowning of the effort that we 
give, even though our effort is weak. All isn't our effort weak a lot of times? And yet God crowns our little, tiny, measly efforts with such abundant blessing because he loves to walk in covenant with his people, God keeping his promise and we striving to keep our end of the promise as well. Are you a survivor? Well, I pray that none of us find ourselves naked and afraid.